Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, ye also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, so as made manifest in the last things for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Um, thank you, Brian, for reading the scriptures this morning. Um, as Sam comes to bring the message to us, Sam, thank you for bringing the scriptures to us, uh, the word of God to us this morning. I'm just going to pray for you as you bring that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing it is to us. And Lord, may, as a congregation, may our ears be opened, may our hearts be opened to hearing your word. Lord, may it change us. Um, May we be different people because of knowing your word and hearing your word. Lord, as Sam comes and brings the message this morning, we pray that you'll give him clarity of mind, Lord, that you'll, um, uh, the message that you've laid on his heart will be clear, and Lord, we commit him into your hand, and Lord, we commit ourselves into your hand also, Lord, that we will um, be changed by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone? Is that guy? Yep, there we go. My name's Sam, if you don't know me. Somebody asked me this morning, uh, do you get nervous before you preach? Uh, and I had to think about that for a second. The last three times I've preached at Hukunui have actually all been to a camera, so it's been very different to this. It was not until back in 2020, I think, when I preached for the first time here that I was in front of everyone. But it's good to be here, it's good to be back together, and let's get to it. So our passage this morning, 1 Peter 1, 13 through to 25. Uh, we're carrying on our series titled, Who Are We? And we're just going to get straight to it because this is the part of the sermon which I find the hardest, trying to think of something to lead into it. Let's just read verse 13 together again. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse is a bit of a transition point between what we've talked about last week with Jeff and what we're going to be getting into today. Um, and it's a little bit of a pep talk, this verse. It's kind of preparing everybody for what's about to be said in the next little 10, 12 verses. Uh, so we're just going to go through that quickly as somewhat as a preparation for us 
And then we're going to circle back to it again at the end. Therefore, therefore, uh, because of such a great salvation that we've heard about last week, because of all those wonderful things about it, which Jeff spoke about last week, because it's so great that angels desire to look into it, gird up the loins of your mind. Your translation might say something like, be alert or prepared for action. My translation's a little more literal. Understandably, they don't translate it this way because the uh, meaning of it can be a little bit lost on us. But what it's referring to uh, is in the first century where men would be wearing long tunics or cloaks. As they went to work, they would pick up what hung down beneath their knees and tuck it into their belt and preparing to do some sort of strenuous activity. So it might be when they're about to do some work on the farm, um, they may be running to take a message, but they would want their knees uncovered and full movement to be able to do that. Hence why I'm wearing shorts this morning. Um, I like the, how this translation gives us a real sense of the work that's to be expected here. So therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Um, it's Christians, it's our job to be on the job 24-7, um, prepared for action, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fully is a very strong word it uses there. It doesn't allow us to place our hope um, in anything changing in this present moment. It's placing all of our hope in something that's to come. Peter's assigning every single piece of these churches' hope to a future event. Now, that's quite interesting when we consider uh, the position of this church. You've heard, I think, at least in two of the last three sermons about the Emperor Nero that these churches were living under and operating under. The Emperor Nero didn't have a fond love of Christians. You may remember the story of him burning down Rome and then proceeding to blame it on the Christians when he realized people didn't like the idea of him burning down Rome to rebuild it in a way that he preferred. And he had them burnt at the stake for this. This is the emperor, this is the reign that these Christians in Asia Minor, these churches that Peter's writing to, are living under. Yet he doesn't assign any hope to a change of government, uh, a change of ruler, some ease from this pain, but instead he assigns all of their hope to something that is to come. He assigns all of their hope to the coming revelation of Jesus Christ, the time where there will be a righting of all wrongs, not the ease from a few. The final hope in that all which is wrong will be dealt with, not a partial hope, which may bring us reprieve. All right, so this is, this is our preparation verse, and it's all said to prepare us for what's to come next. He does this because he's getting them ready to present them with the key idea of this message, and the key idea comes in our next three words, as obedient children. This passage that we're gonna go through is all about, <laughs> that's one critic, um, <laughs> as obedient children. Um, it's all about our identity uh, of who we are as children before God. He goes on to say, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. This passage, it's all about family identity, like I was just saying. Um, it's all about our position before God as his children um, and living under that. And as we go through this series titled, Who Are We? This text presents us with one aspect of who we are. We as individuals and we as a collective of Hokonui Bible Church are children of God living before God as our Father. When I prepare a sermon, I like to have multiple translations with me. I like to have probably three or four translations just to look at as I read. Uh, it helps bring clarity to what I'm reading, um, and I think it helps me to not base 
um, a major point off a word that might just be translated like that in one um, translation. And as I came to this passage, I noticed something very different, very interesting about how these passages were laid out. And it's actually in the title, which I know isn't the inspired word of God, so you can dismiss this if you want. But three of the four translations I was looking at had the title, Be Holy, or Calling to Be Holy. But one uh, had a slightly different title, quite different actually. It labeled it, Living Before God, Our Father. Now to be clear, I'm not advocating for that translation or anything, but what I'm noting is the contrast of how we could come to this passage and how we could read it. And it's not that these titles are in opposition to each other, they're not opposites, but they present quite a different way of which we can approach this. Uh, Living under God our Father does mean that we'll ultimately live a holy life, but what I think it presents differently and better is that it's because of our identity that we choose to live this holy life. It's a product of who we are. Um, We're not being someone, we're not acting as something to be someone. We live under God our Father and therefore we seek to be holy. We not seek to be holy to live under God our Father. Uh, We can't live in a way to give ourselves our identity. We have our identity, it comes first, and then we live from that. We are children of God. We're adopted by Him. We've been brought into His family at the highest of prices. Uh, And this is the most important thing about us, what God has done for us and where we now sit before Him. And it's not how we act, it's that truth about who we are. And that doesn't take away from any importance about holy living and that call. It's It's just placing them in the correct order. Uh, We are who we are, and then we live as a result of who we are, not the other way around. So we live now, we live as members of God's family, we're still growing up, we're still maturing, we're still looking forward to the day when Christ, our brother, returns and he completes the good work in us that he has begun. But until that day, we continue to remember our position before God uh, and learn what it is like to be a part of his family. Uh, So the question we naturally have to ask ourselves and what we're going to be going through um, this text with in mind Uh, is what does it mean to live before God as our Father? And I think Peter identifies two major elements in this text, which is what we're going to be looking at. As we move forward in our passage to verse 17, we see this. Let's read it together. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. The if here, it might make it sound like they have the option or like maybe you're calling on God. Um, It's actually more this idea that they are calling on God and it's a therefore because you call on God do this. The NIV translates it since, um, which might be more helpful. But what happens in this verse is we have presented to us a balance here between God who is our Father um, and God who is our judge whom we should fear. Now Jeff talked last week a lot about keeping things in the balance um, and we've got that same task again here this week. We approach the creator of the world, the God who was before all things, who set the stars in the sky the holy God, and we call him Father. And we're not going to stop and consider that for a very long time, but I also don't want to brush over that. The God who has been since eternity chooses for us to have that relationship with him. He chooses to adopt us. He's chosen to be able to bring, that, bring us into that relationship at a great price. Yet he is also, at that same moment, our judge. And just because he's our Father does not mean he will show us favoritism. He judges without partiality. We should fear this. We should fear his fatherly discipline. It's a great privilege to be a part of his family, but it cannot lead to presumptuous living that disobedience will go unnoticed and undisciplined. 
The judgment that Peter's referring to here, it's not a future judgment. It's not a judgment about where we're going to spend our eternal destinies. It's a judgment for this present moment. It's his discipline for us as his children, just as fathers discipline their children in the present moment. Um, We know it's not about a time to come because Peter says that we should fear it. Uh, And as believers, we have no reason to fear a final judgment. We are not under condemnation, but we have reason to fear his present judgment. Now, again, to take from what Jeff was using last week, and we think of this pendulum swinging from side to side um, and two sides, and it's not that in this case they're opposing, but it might appear to us at first that they're in conflict, um, and us wanting to sit in the middle of them, holding them in equal tension. On the one side, we have viewing God as our Father without a healthy fear of Him. Uh, And on the other side, we have viewing God with a lot of fear and with minimal intimacy. And I think there's elements probably of both of these in our circles, right? Um, So let's consider first what it would be to love God as our Father, but not have a healthy fear of Him. Um, And this side of the pendulum swing, it's certainly more comfortable for us, right? In fact, it's the comfort which causes it to potentially be a problem. On this side of the discussion, we we emphasize God's love for His children, His people, His care for them. Uh, We might think of a story like the parable of the prodigal son, um, where the father went running to his son, not withholding anything from him and restoring him. There's such a beautiful intimacy in this relationship between a father and a son, and we have the opportunity for that with God our Father. But I think where this position starts to break down is that when this this requirement of fear in this relationship starts to be watered down um, or taken away, People leading this way might often replace the term fear of God in the Bible with respect for God or awe of God. Uh, But that, as one commentator puts it on this text, would be to the impoverishment of their spiritual lives. The Greek word used here is phobos, where we get our Greek word, uh, our English word, phobia from. And it's a word used in the New Testament, which I think leaves no room for this interpretation. Uh, It's the same word used to describe the disciples in John 20 when they're Jesus has been killed, they haven't seen him again, they have no idea that he's been brought back to life, and they're hiding together from the Jews, um, and this word is used describing their fear of the Jews. Uh, it would be silly to try and replace that word with respect for the Jews or awe of the Jews, wouldn't it? We have to learn and seek to understand what this biblical commandment to fear God means. Uh, but if we go back to the other side and we swing our pendulum back the other way, we see something very different. Um, on this side where there is fear of God but no intimacy with him, we see other problems arise. Often people on this uh, end of the spectrum will live very legalistic lifestyles. Um, This is an idea that people have about the God of the Old Testament, that he was a figure to be feared but not addressed tenderly. Um, These people do their best to remain obedient, but they're full of bitterness and sorrow as they don't lead into the one relationship that can sustain them um, in living out the way that God has prescribed. There's little love and affection towards their heavenly Father, but a fear which drives their actions And on this side, just as fear, I think, can be watered down to respect, on one side, I think on this side, it can quickly be turned to terror. That's not the fear Peter is speaking of. Fear does not have to contradict confidence. Fear does not have to be in opposition to love. I love to surf. I love the ocean. And the ocean requires of me to have a healthy fear of it. Uh, If I don't, I'll quite likely at some point drown. There was a day just a couple of weeks ago when I went out for a surf with my friend Josh, And on this particular day, there was a very large tide and there was some very large swell. Um, And what that means is there's essentially a lot of current and it makes the ocean quite a dangerous place to be. 
Um, and we sat in the car park in Raglan at Manu Bay for about 20 minutes just watching these waves come in, trying to decide if we were going to go out. Now, there were only two people out in the water, and if you know anything about Raglan and surfers, that's very unusual for there to be that few. Um, but there were about 20 people sitting in the car park watching, also deciding if they were going to go out. Now, we decided, hey, we're probably not up for this, um, so we actually drove around the corner, we surfed a different break, a little more mellow, because we have enough fear of the ocean to know that getting into it in that situation, in that particular place, uh, wouldn't be a good idea. Now, that didn't stop me from loving the ocean, I still loved the ocean, but my fear of the ocean informed how I should act. Now, you might think you could swap the word respect for the ocean in there. Firstly, I'd tell you you don't know anything about the ocean. Secondly, I would say it's still a poor analogy because no matter what analogy we make for this, the God who we're comparing it to is going to be far more powerful than the ocean he created. Uh, we're going to have far more reason to fear him. There's no judgment of God's which is left to luck or chance like something in the ocean might be left to. Uh, and naturally, we fear what we don't understand. That's natural for humans, and we should fear it because we don't have control over it. And in God's case, his power is greater than we understand. His love is greater than we understand. His discipline is greater than we understand. Every attribute he has is greater than we understand. And I think there's a reverence involved in this in the acknowledgement that we do not get him. He is other to us. God is undoubtedly bigger in every sense of that word than we can understand. And naturally, we should fear that. The disciples, the Jews, the prophets, they were all rarely correct around how they thought Jesus or God in the Old Testament was ought to act. They got that wrong time and time and time again. Jeff spoke last week about reading the signs of the times and how they failed to do that at the coming of Jesus. And yes, we have the opportunity to do better with different things, but we're probably not going to get, we're definitely not going to get everything right. We do not get him. He is different to us. And I'd hate for us to be a church or people that have God in this little box of how he acts and what he does, um, and we think he is predictable and that we understand him and we limit him in that way. I think that's a very dangerous thing to do, and I think we see countless examples in Scripture of things which we wouldn't expect. I think of the story in Acts, when Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much money they were bringing and they were struck down by God as discipline for what they were doing. Now, that's something that I'm not expecting to happen to this morning, but do we allow room for God to work in that way? Do we allow God to think of God as a God who disciplines and is working in our present moment? Do we consider that God's discipline is something active in our lives? Because we need to, because it is. He says that he'll discipline us. Uh, if he's a father who loves us, he will not leave us as we are. He will seek to discipline us and bring us into holy obedience as he has asked of us to do. So do we look at our lives, do we see moments where we are being disciplined or are we explaining lives away, not allowing for God to work supernaturally in that way? Now, I wanna be careful as I say that. I understand that it could be very offensive if you're going through something hard in your life to then have somebody come up here and say, oh, that's the discipline of God. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, do we allow room for that? That is not meaning that everything in your life is a direct result of how God is influencing in that way. But are we allowing room for God to work in a supernatural way in our lives and being able to acknowledge that he is disciplining us as his children? This fear that we have of him and of his discipline is, of course, tempered by what we do understand because although we may not know God fully as he knows us, we know things about God. We understand small parts of his character. We know that God is for us. We know that he loves and cares for us more than we care for ourselves. 
Um, I think C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of this in Narnia. Lucy, who at this point in the story has never met the lion, Aslan, asks the question, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver responds, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That's very simple, but I think it captures it so perfectly. We do not know the mind of God. Uh, We cannot determine how he's going to act. Um, Safe's definitely definitely not a word we should use to describe him. Certainly we're safe, just as Aslan kept the Narnians safe, God has kept us safe in regards to certain things, but it's not who he is. Now, we don't want to nullify either of these views, right? We don't want to nullify God's love, and we don't want to nullify our fear of him, and I'm not advocating to stop emphasizing either of them. I'm not advocating to stop emphasizing God's love for us as his children, and I'm not emphasizing to keep just his fear. I'm I'm asking us to emphasize both of them. Love cautioned by fear will not be presumptuous, taken for granted, or abused. We will not lightheartedly treat God's love when we give him the fear that he is due. It will be cherished. It's desirable to have his affections, and he happily obliges to give them to us. He shows us great affection that's unmatched and unequal to any other we might receive. And on the other side, fear tempered by love will not turn away into terror or steal away intimacy. It will promote obedience and enhance our love as we recognize that we are really helpless before God, yet he holds us tenderly in his arms. In unison, fear and love help us to live before God our Father in the way that he has prescribed, in holiness. And that is why this is the verse immediately following the command to be holy. It's the recipe for our success. Peter, he gives good reason for the love and fear of our God as we read further. I'm reading from verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Here, Peter, he gives us eloquently a great basis for knowing why we have God's love and why we should also fear him. He sent his only son to be manifest among us and for us, His precious son, Jesus. Now that's a term that Peter's gonna use a lot throughout the next chapter or so. Precious as a term he's talking about in his blood here in 1 Peter. And as we get into 2 Peter, we're gonna see lots of different times where Jesus is described as precious to him. And it's his precious son, Jesus' blood that he's used to redeem us. The highest cost. He wasn't of finite value like gold or silver, which we consider to be of great value because they are objects which decay and corrupt. They are corruptible. But he was of an infinite value, immeasurable worth. Yet he was foreordained. And think about how Jeff spoke about that word last week. This isn't God being caught by surprise by our situation with sin and having to figure out a way to redeem us. This is God's purpose for Jesus from the beginning of time. And that purpose, verse 21, that we might through him believe in God. Now, how does this connect to our love and our fear of him? I'm sure it's quite clear Then you've been told thousands of times and we've just had an example even from Mikey and Communion of how this is his great love and care for us as his children. But let's consider what's less noticed. One who does not conduct themselves in fear, one who loves God but does not fear his discipline for wrongdoing, spits in the face of the one who paid the price for him to have that father. 
They make little of the price that has been paid for their salvation. Now, I hope as I say that, there's some part of you which maybe churns with a little bit of anger about that, that somebody would spit in his face for what he has done. How dare someone belittle the price of our salvation? How dare someone belittle the price that Jesus has paid? And that's, that's a good thing to feel that. I think the almighty judge of the universe certainly feels that way. And that's why he will judge those who do not fear him and scorn the price he has paid to adopt us as his children. God has paid a great price for us. We know his love by it. And we must fear to ever scorn it. It's this fear that will keep us in obedience and will teach us to love him more as we see that obedience is what is best for us. Let's carry on reading from verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Notice here at the very beginning of this passage how um, the tense changes. Peter's been giving instructions to them about be holy, gird up the loins of your mind, all present, things that they are to do. But here it changes to the past tense, and that's in the expectation of their obedience. Imagine if we came up and we preached every Sunday and we preached in the past tense with the expectation of your obedience. That would be very strange. <laughs> Since you have purified yourselves, it's a change of tense here, yeah. And notice the marker of this obedience. It's the same marker uh, which Dan pointed out about disciples three weeks ago. The marker of disciple, the marker of somebody who has purified their soul is love. There's markers in all families, right? There's different personality traits, different things which can cause us to recognize people. Uh, and I think in our brethren circles, we've got a few experts at that, at being, being able to identify different people from different families. We had lunch with Dalwyn last week after church on Sunday, and she heard some last names, and you could see the cogs just spinning at a rate they had not spun all conversation, uh, making dozens of connection points about how she could know that person and people they were related to. Now, the defining feature of God's family, it's not a last name. Uh, it's not how we look. It's holiness. It's love. That's the marker that we've been given. If we live before God our Father, being intimate with Him and fearing Him, the marker in our lives will be love. It's the defining trait of God's family. It's the result of a purified heart. All right, I want to circle back to that preparation verse that we started in. Peter instructed his readers to be prepared for action, to be alert, to be setting their hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. He then proceeded to tell them how they were to live as obedient children. I want us to circle back to that now as we see how these things help us to live as obedient children. There are actions we will need to take. There is thinking that we will have to do if we are to live as children of God. We've been given a new identity, but we still require teaching and training and living the new life we have been given. Good thinking, correct thinking, it precedes good action. Uh, and we've talked about some good thinking here. We've talked about how we need to consider ourselves in relation to God as our Father, coming before Him and loving the intimacy that we have between Him, the importance of that. What a wonderful and amazing connection that we have to Him. We've also talked about how we need to fear Him appropriately not taking for granted that intimacy. 
We can talk about it in the sermon, we can address it in our conversations, but ultimately living in the balance of these two things is very difficult. And it's a task which we'll never completely perfect and a task which we'll be trying to do for the rest of our lives. It doesn't come easily. We're each at different stages of this journey. Some of us have been doing this for a lot longer and are a lot better at this, and some of us are just starting out. It's a long journey, it's a hard journey, but it's a journey with an end. We are, conduct, we are to conduct ourselves like this throughout the time of our stay here, verse 17. The temporary nature of our struggle is something which is highlighted throughout this passage. If I read again verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We were previously born of something corruptible, the flesh. And sin has corrupted our bodies, uh, and we know that sin leads to death. But we have been born again into a new family, uh, and we have a new body awaiting for us. Uh, And it's through the word of God, which has happened, which lives and abides forever, something incorruptible. Redeemed not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. And it's in the incorruptible that we place our hope throughout the struggle. We place our hope in the return of the firstborn. We place our hope in the one who conquered the incorruptible, who is brought back to life in a body that will last forever. We place our hope in him because we're walking through a journey which he has already walked. Uh, Because it's not gonna be easy and it's not gonna be hard. Uh, We've called to be a part of a family which is set apart, which is different. Uh, And we have an example of how to live as a part of that family. Uh, And we have something to look forward to as we struggle through it. Now I wanna ask some questions as I close. I'm not one to stand up here and preach application in the sense of this is exactly what you should do and this will help you to live in this way. But I hope something of what what I've said will implicate you in some way. Because ultimately, the way that we're changed is essentially our view of God becomes clearer. We see him a little bit more. That's what changes us. When we behold him, we'll become more like him. Um, So I wanna ask some questions which might implicate how you view God. And as I ask those, I'm not gonna try and bring application to these different ways of which might, uh, these different ways in which you might be struggling with seeing him as your father and seeing him as your judge. That's something for this community to do amongst ourselves and talk to people about. But let me ask some questions. When you think of God as father, when you think of that term father as a way of addressing God, how does that make you feel? Is it a term that you use regularly? Is it a term you're less familiar with? Uh, Is it a term you shy away from because you don't think it accurately describes how you relate to God? Do you think it's a bit soft, perhaps, not not how you relate to God? On the other hand, when you hear of the term fear of God, is it a term uh, that makes you uncomfortable? Now, hopefully in some way, that term would make you uncomfortable because you should fear God, but is it a term which makes you uncomfortable in the sense of that's not something you like to talk about? Is it a term you like to change into respect of God? Have you made it something that is comfortable? Would others identify you as a part of this family, as a part of the children of God, by the marker of love? Would it be identified by your tag, Christian, or would it be be identifiable by the personality trait of love, which has been prescribed as the marker of this community? 
I'm not going to try to answer those questions like I was saying. That's what this community is for. Perhaps awkwardly ask somebody during morning tea, do you address God as Father? Um, <laughs> I can't stand, stand up here and appropriate responses to each of these, but that is what we have this community for, and that's a beautiful thing that we can do. Let me pray. Dear Father, we thank you that we can come before you and call you Father. We thank you for the great honour, the privilege that it is to come before you in this way, um, that we can have confidence as we come before you, um, knowing that you care for us, that we can call upon you and you meet our needs. But Lord, we also consider how you are the almighty judge of the world. We consider the the cost of which you have brought us into your family, Lord, and I pray that we would not be a community that scorns that cost. Lord, I pray that we would be a community that comes before you, loving you and intimately connecting to you, but like fearing you and just knowing that you are so other to us. Not loving you because you are simple and we understand, but loving you because of how great you are and because of these little glimpses we have of you, we know that you are good. Would that be a marker of this community, Lord? Would we, would we just be a people who are so clearly in awe of you? Uh, would it cause us to love you more? Would it cause us to love others more? Would that um, just define who we are? Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.